Welcome to Wisdom Shared, where parents are the experts and connection inspires change. I'm Carol Blueweiss. I was compelled to create this podcast after meeting a special group of parents from all over the world who were raising children with special needs. I had a hunch that these hidden stories, peppered with uncertainty, hope, resilience, joy, fear, pain, and love, could teach more than just me how to transcend the quick assumptions most of us make about people who are different than ourselves. Actually, these parents had a lot more to teach me than I even imagined. Beryl was one of those parents. She was a designer in Italy before moving back to Turkey to raise her family, and sooner than expected, gave birth to twins, Emre and Denise. The kids spent the first five weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit, while Beryl, a single mother, traveled back and forth from her home to be with them. And when at 13 months, Emre was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and told by two doctors that he would never walk or talk, Beryl decided to take matters into her own hands. The one method she intuitively felt would allow Emre to reach his potential was found in another continent. So she packed her bags. And during her training, the unexpected happened. You know, I went to the training to learn the tools to help my son and other children, but I had no idea how much it would change me as a person. She didn't stop with helping just her son. She wanted to share what she had learned with other families. Beryl opened up a clinic in Istanbul, teaching the Anapaniel method of neuromovement. Beryl is one of the most determined, passionate, honest, and articulate women I have ever met. She describes how she guided Emery's teachers to give her son agency. She insisted that Emery learn to stand up for himself when bullied, to follow his passions and believe in himself. He recently earned his brown belt in judo, and Beryl wrote a book, soon to be published in the United States, called I Am Free Now. Let's listen to Beryl's wisdom. English is not my first language, so every now and then I might get lost for words. With accents, I, I love it. Like it, It's kind of nice for you to make the mistakes because it tells us you're not American, which means you have something much more interesting to say than us Americans. Okay. Okay. Perfect. No worries. Let's get started. I Tell me a little bit about where you live and and about your family. Like who, who do you live with? So I live in Istanbul, um, the biggest city in Turkey. I'm a single mom living with my two kids. I have twins. They're nine-year-old, uh, a boy and a girl. Uh, my daughter's name is Deniz, and my son is Emre, and Emre has special needs. He, um, he has a diagnosis of PVL, periventricular locomalacia, and cerebral palsy. And so you had two, two babies, obviously, born at the same time. And tell me a little bit about how that played out for you. It must have been very traumatic. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, all my life I wanted to have kids. I love kids. I love being around kids. I was looking forward to having my own kids. So um, I was over the moon when I found out that I was pregnant. At that time, my uh, my husband at the time uh, was uh, doing his military service in Turkey. And it is compulsory. Every male has to do it. And because prior to that, we were living in Italy, uh, he had it, uh, he had to do his later. So during my pregnancy, um, he was away and I was alone. And around 29 weeks, uh, I suddenly had to go to the hospital and 
thinking something is wrong, but did not imagine that that day would be the day of my delivery. So obviously I was shocked. I was, uh, you know, traumatized and not knowing what was going to happen, if they would live, if they would survive. Um, just, you know, you have all these dreams about what's next in your life and suddenly it's all washed away and you're left with a big unknown. So that was hard to tackle uh, emotionally because I had to be strong and uh, be there for them. So while my husband was away, so those five weeks basically were the hardest days of my entire life, you know, leaving them at the hospital every night, coming home, not knowing if I would see them again the next morning, you know, it, it was, it was, it was tough. It was rough. And, you know, obviously my body was going through, you know, postpartum uh, changes, which I had uh, no luxury on focusing on. So I was just completely into uh, being with my kids and giving them love and hope as much as I could while I was with them. And how long did you stay in the hospital? Only one night. Is that normal in Turkey? It's not. No, it's not normal. But I just I was trying to be very strong for them. I wanted to see that. I didn't imagine they would discharge me because I looked so okay. I just wanted to be up and be with my kids in the NICU. And once the doctors saw me up and walking, they said, you can go home now. And I'm like, I don't want to go home. I want to be with them the entire time. Of course, that wasn't allowed. So I went home the next day and then did a lot of back and forth every day, twice a day, sometimes three times a day. You know, I would wake up three or four in the morning and I would call the nurses in the NICU asking them how the kids were doing. And so, yeah, it wasn't easy. Now, I'm speaking from experience. I had a C-section of one and there's just no way I could barely, I remember I, I had no idea I was going to experience so much pain just moving. So how is it that you didn't have that? I mean, or did you when you were adrenaline was rushing, you think? what? Exactly. But I just numbed myself, Carol. It was just like, I don't know what I went through in those days. I don't know. I numbed my brain to it all. I just wanted to be, you know, strong for them. And I, you know, of, of course, it was like dis- there, there was a lot of discomfort, and but I, I didn't want to listen to my own self and my own body. So the, the power of the brain, right? To, and the motherly instinct. It, exactly. So strong. So tell me, how old were they when they were discharged? Uh, they were 34 weeks. So we stayed there for five weeks in total. Did they have therapy in the hospital? How does it work in Turkey? No, 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 no. Uh, Unfortunately not. I mean, you know, that's one of my uh, biggest regrets that I didn't know more at the time because a couple days after they were born, you know, the neurologist came in, they had brain scan and, uh, and everything seemed fine. But after five weeks, you know, and having premature babies, uh, they should have had another uh, scan before they discharged us. Um, Now I know that. Uh, At the time, I did not. So I did not question anything. By the time they discharged us, I thought everything we left behind and it was going to be all, you know, rainbows from that day onwards. Nothing was wrong. They were healthy. I could take them home, Uh, you know, like just be a normal family. He was diagnosed at 13 months old. 
during that year uh, span, I knew that his, I could see that his, he was delayed because, you know, you're not supposed to compare kids to other kids, but I could see my daughter having, you know, gaining new skills, um, doing new stuff every day. And he still couldn't hold his head up. Uh, he couldn't sit. He couldn't, you know, there was, it was very different. And it, the, the gap was getting larger and uh, larger every day. But our doctors say, you know, kept telling me every time I raised this question, she would tell us that, you know, they were born prematurely, so we should wait a little more. He could uh, be um, progressing a little slower, but there's nothing wrong with him. Let's wait, let's wait until 13 months old. When she said, now you've crossed the red line and you should go and see a neurologist. We went to see the neurologist and then the neurologist was angry with me saying, why didn't you come here before? So, so. So, um, yeah, so that's when he had his diagnosis. And that's, uh, I call the second, you know, to tsunami, because, you know, you're thinking everything is okay, you, you leave those, you know, worried and uh, difficult time back in the hospital, you have a year ahead of you, there's that motherly instinct saying, you know, something is wrong. But still, you're hoping it's all fine, because the doctor's saying it's all fine. And then you have the second round of trauma. And so how does it work in, in Turkey with, in, in the United States, as you know, they have what's called early intervention. Is that, is there something similar to that or how does it work? Unfortunately not. I mean, the state, the support that the state gives is, is very minimal. So basically you have to fetch for everything on your own as a parent, if you want to do anything outside or more for your child privately. Does that make sense? Yes, completely. Yeah. Oh, perfect. So there was no early intermission. Basically, the neurologist uh, told us to go see a PT. And that's when we started with physical therapy. Well, well first it was, uh, sorry, first it was um, occupational therapy and play therapy. And then once the, the, we had the reports and the diagnosis, and so that's when they said you, you should also see a PT. And um, yeah, our, our new life began. And did you have to go to a clinic or did they come to you? No, no, no. We go to a clinic. So we you were, you were bringing both your kids. Um, at the time, uh, no, only my son, because my daughter was, you know, we never, she never got, she was never referred to see a neurologist. So we, we didn't need, we didn't think she needed any kind of uh, therapy until we started with the uh, anatomical method. Oh, that's interesting. So we'll come back to that. Tell me a little bit about the physical therapy, because I, I want to I wanna then ask you about the ABM method and how they're different and why you switched over. Yeah, and I just want to hear about, you know, different culture, different way to do rehab. Tell me a little bit more mm -hmm. about how that worked for Emra. Our physical therapy adventure uh, lasted very briefly. I have to say, only a couple of months, because basically, as a mom, I saw how much he was suffering during the sessions. And seeing him like that, and not interested in what he was asked to do, basically, because he couldn't do it. Uh, it was traumatizing for him as much as it was for me. He was crying. I was crying during the sessions. And I was, I, I remember I was thinking to myself, like, this is going to be a part of our life. It has to be a part of our life. And what good can come out from this if 
this is what it's called, PT. And I don't want to talk bad about physical therapy per se. I think uh, it's very useful. It's just the, the, the place we started. Now that I have more experience and I've seen and worked with many different physical therapists, it was just that one location where we started was a very negative uh, experience for us as a family. But now that I look back, maybe it also helped me find ABM through that experience so I think you know there there was a good in that Hmm. that's a that's a great way to to look at it so just before we leave that I just can you give some examples of what they were doing in physical therapy and you know obviously there's different therapists would do different things but in your in your experience in your case for that one therapist at that time in history what what was she choosing to do well, there's this uh, very clear image in my head that I cannot wipe out. The two therapists had placed him on a roller as if he was sitting on a horse, right? So there's this roller rocking him from side to side. And there's these two buckets on each side of him. And he was asked to pick up a toy, bring it to the other side and drop it in the other bucket. And he could not hold his head up at that time. So his spine was not organized, his pelvis was not, you know, he, 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 there, there was no way uh, for him to carry his head over his spine and the pelvis, yet he was asked to turn from one side, pick up a toy, uh, some weight, take it to the other side, and he just ca- couldn't do it, and he was crying, and I was crying, and I was like, no, this cannot be it. It's like there, there should be a more humane way to connect with him and see where he's at and ask him to, or help him to get to the next step, not go like 50 steps ahead. It, it was just like, I had no idea what it could be, but I knew there was, there, there should be a way. So that's when I started doing my research. He was 14 months, you said? Um, yeah, around that time he was 14, 15 months. And what was he able to do? What were his uh, abilities? He could roll from one side to the other. He couldn't sit, he couldn't crawl, he couldn't come up to all fours, no. So they skipped right over to putting him in a sitting position. Yeah, because in their mind, you know, a, a baby of a certain age should be able to have certain skills. So they're just trying to rush him to do that when his brain has no idea where he is in space. So what happened after you were, once again, it sounds like you were traumatized. Where did you go from there? I went uh, on Google. (laughs) I went on Google. I went on the internet. I felt I wasn't going to be able to find answers within Turkey. So I went on to international forums, uh, parent blogs, parent forums to see, uh, to search for what else is out there and to help, uh, you know, my son. So I went on a Canadian forum and, you know, there were all these different types of modalities, methods mentioned, what works for a certain child, what works for another child. And there was this abbreviation, you know, ABM, ABM. And I'm like, what is this ABM? So I remember putting it in Google, you know, ABM cerebral palsy, you know, let's see what's going to come out from this. And there it was, you know, the Anat Daniel method. So I went onto her website and, uh, you know, the more I read, the more I wanted to read. 
And one of the moms in the forum had said that uh, Anat's book, Kids Beyond Limits, has just been published. So, uh, and I should read it. So that's when I ordered the book from the States. It arrived. I just read it and I read it again. And I think I read it like, you know, three times over and over. And I said, you know, we've, we've got to do this. You know, this is it. This, this, it just like, it clicked with my understanding of him. I had no idea about neuroplasticity at the time. I had no idea about how much movement has influence on the brain's potential to uh, learn and change. Uh, but it's just like the, the way she connected with the children story over story. It just, I was inspired and I was like, you know, I know this is going to help him. We should try it. And then what, what did you do? So then, of course, I wrote to um, Delete at the center. <laughs> I, I said, you know, this is our story and I, I, I'm looking forward to coming to the center. But Anat was fully booked. I wanted Anat to see my son. So, uh, you know, she said Anat can see him in the next round, which would be in, in, the, in four months time. And for me, you know, waiting for four months would be losing four years of uh, progress at that age. So I said, if I can't go to San Francisco, then I have to find someone else, you know, some other practitioner, an experienced practitioner to work with my son. And I had friends in uh, Toronto and I was communicating with them at the time. And they said, you know, come here, we'll, we'll find someone here. And so I started researching for practitioners in Canada and I found Judith Stack in Toronto and my friends were living in Toronto. So I said, perfect. So I started corresponding with Judith. And luckily she gave an, uh, you know, she had a place for us in a month's time. Uh, he would be 16 months at that time. And that was enough time for us to get, you know, passports and visas and all that procedure. And, and we were off to Canada. I had scheduled for us to go for three weeks. And I had scheduled also for, for my daughter, Dennis, to have lessons because, you know, I was reading that it's not therapy it's it's not being done for a particular reason but it was just to improve the learning potential of the brain and it could be useful for for her too so why not so I scheduled lessons for both of them and he made progress every single day that I ended up extending our stay for two and a half months. I just, I wasn't ready to go back. I couldn't go back. There was nothing equivalent to what I was seeing during the lessons and after the lessons. I was scared of going back to Turkey. You know, what would happen next? So, so I extended week by week, <laughs> week after week. Uh, we, we, um, we extended our stay and ended up being there for two and a half months. Wow. And I didn't ask you this. In physical therapy, what was the prescription? Like how many times a week or how many times a day was it for physical therapy? And then how was it organized with Judy, with ABM? Well, basically, the neurologist who uh, diagnosed Emre said that he will never be able to walk and possibly not talk looking at the injury. And she said, you know, go twice a week and hope for the best. Basically, you know, that's the prescription we got. And of course, with Judith, it was, you know, in ABM, we do intensives. So it's 10 lessons per week. We would basically go in the morning, have a lesson, then go back home, feed them a nap. And then in the afternoon, when they're awake, go back again. 
What about other medical interventions? How does it work? Do you, you had your neurologist, you had your general doctor for a little while, you had a physical therapist, you have ABM. Are there any other medical people in, in your life that help manage? Emra had SPML surgery by Dr. Roy Nuzo twice. And SPML really helped him with his uh, mobility too. What kind of doctor is he? Podiatrist who has recently unfortunately retired, but he has been following Emre since he was three. And we get his braces there because there is unfortunately nothing even similar to in quality of the braces, but also the time Dr. Jordan spends with the child and the parent and understanding and analyzing the movements of the child and how he determines what kind of assistance he needs to take into the next step is is unique basically once dr jordan told me that he basically tried himself every single brace that he has designed on himself before issuing to to the kids and he worked with pts physical therapists while he was with the braces without the braces to feel the difference in his own body so there was that uh, kinesthetic empathy he has uh, with the child with the support I mean, I trust both doctors so much. These two doctors really do the best they can uh, with the minimal intervention they can to help uh, the child go beyond their limitations. An insurance program for physical therapy in Turkey, or how does it work for medical care? It comes down to, you know, two hours a week, which is not enough. So a lot of families have to pay out of their pocket. So it's, it's a lot of financial burden on the families. And also in our culture, the, the big family is, is a lot of support. Uh, so relatives and financially, but also like taking care of the kids. And you, you're never alone, really. We're very fortunate in that sense. There's this always, you know, the aunts and uncles and grandparents. Who is your support network? If you're asking about my having emotional support, which I think is the is the is the main question there. So I went through phases. I was feeling very alone and isolated initially. I thought I felt like no one really, you know, I had this big support, my family, my friends around, but no one really got what I was going through. And so I built these big walls around me and I, 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 I just wanted to be inside with the two kids and um, I just didn't want to have anything to do with the outside world, which at that point I thought I needed, to, I, I need someone to guide me through this because this is not healthy. I started to see a, a psychologist. And one of the things that she told me, because I was, whenever I was talking, I was talking about the kids and not about myself. And something she said really struck me. She said, you know, your kids were born to this situation. And the better he does every day, their situation is going to get better. But your situation, you had your plans and your dreams and, uh, you know, wishes and all of that evaporated once you, you, you gave birth at 29 weeks. So you have to take care of yourself. You have to look inside 
and seek what works for you and how you can heal yourself. Let like they're fine already. You have to put the oxygen mask to yourself first, which I found out to be very useful advice. And then I moved to the next step, which was by pure coincidence, I ended up in this group doing psychodrama. I don't know if it's the same word in English, psychodrama. It's a group uh, therapy work given by a psychologist. And it's, it's like a family constellation, but you're not doing it through energy level, but it's more how the psychologist works with you in this group setting is you have different members of your family and you have a topic you want to explore. So you choose different characters from the group representing the members of your family. And the way the psychologist takes you through it is you, you get to see the same situation from the different personalities in your life and how they would talk to each other, how uh, you communicate and you bond with each other. It just wakens you up to new possibilities within those relationships. And that's where in that group setting, you know, we were eight, eight of us. And that was the first time I said it out loud that I have a child with special needs. And that was the breaking point for me because before that, you know, of, of course I have a special needs child, but I couldn't verbalize it. I was too scared to see what would happen if I would say it out loud. But there I just overcame that fear and I didn't realize I would feel so much lighter after having said it and having, you know, the, the whole group dynamic helped me a lot in, in healing myself. And the third phase was obviously going into the training, the ABM neuromobile training. It's, you know, we were a group of, I don't know, around 100 students mostly parents with special needs. And it was just wonderful because, you know, you could look into each other's eye and understand each other and feel each other without, without needing for words. And it was just such a safe place to be and help me transform. You know, I went to the training to learn the tools to help my son and other children, but I had no idea how much it would change me as a person. The, the more you do the work, the more you come to your own self and having a clear idea of where you stand in your life and where you want to stand and what is a yes and what is a no. So, you know, it's just like it was really transformational for me. And I was reading all these quotations in Anat's website and, and talking to the enrollment manager about, you know, this is going to be so transformational, so wonderful. And it was just like, it sounded so American, you know, I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but then when, once I was there, it, it, it truly was transformational. It was, it was the best thing I've ever done for myself, you know, and then I'm, I'm able to give it to others. So it's, it's like, it's such a, it's such a blessing. If, the, if there were three things that just make it so powerful, what, what are those three things that, that, that makes it unique and different from whatever else you've tried? The sentence that struck me most when I first read Anat's book was, if he could, he would. So, and that ties into, you know, from fixing to connecting. It's, it's you look at the child and where we started uh, with physical therapy, there's this expectation of where the child should be. And there's trying to rush him into that state. But if he could, he would already. 
and he can't. So we need to look at from a different perspective and see where the child is and offer different ways of outlet for him to figure out how to get to the next step instead of making the child do it. So those were the two concepts that really struck me when I started understanding the method more and more. The three that just makes you feel like it makes this stand as a apart from anything else you've tried or heard about? I would say definitely one of the essentials, the slow. It was so uh, contradictory to where we were when we started, especially having a child who's delayed and uh, reading about slow and looking at the child and you know, listening to the experts saying, by this age, uh, he should be doing this. And by this age, he should be doing that. And, and then you're reading about slow and the importance of slow. But the more I slowed down to help him slow down and created this space where I started noticing more and more that I was giving him opportunity and time for him to figure out how to move and how to think and how to say a sound. So he had an intention, which then he could turn it into an action, whatever it was. But if I didn't slow down and give him that space for him to discover and feel and sense and all of that, he would maybe not get there. So it was just those amplified moments, making these micro moments into these macro learning opportunities. It was fascinating. And the more I did it, the more I so that he was started having a say in uh, and taking agency in what he was doing. And that, I think, created the foundation of where he is now, which is very, you know, he's a child with confidence and, and determination and motivations because he figured things out for himself. Wow. So, yeah, that's a whole different way of looking at it. And it sounds like it really puts the parent in there as much as the child, how you are as a person and how you think and feel is as important. For sure. So like you said, that's that that connection. Now, I, I am also trained in ABM, so I'm very familiar with the concepts, but I don't have a child with special needs myself. And I think that learning about these things from the outside in, as opposed to for you, the inside out is, is very mm -hmm. different. So that's why I, I ask you to explain because I could never explain it the way you just did. I mean, it just is, is much more powerful for you to explain. Yeah, also because I thought, you know, we're having these intensives. So it corresponds to, what, 10 hours a month, maybe. And the rest of the time, he's at home, you know, or he's with me. So I have to find a way to make it as useful as possible for him to integrate what he's learned during the lesson and maybe to go a step further. So I, I really had to change my way of thinking and being with him and applying the essentials one at a time, maybe because initially it was overwhelming to think about all of, all of them at the same time. But the more I did it, the more I could step back and I could let him come forward you know it was such a dance between us and I found it really you know I was I, I have studied design and I thought you know design is the most creative thing but just being with the child and 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 dancing with their brain is the most creative thing ever I think 
So, and that's, again, uh, one of the reasons also that I decided to write the book. You know, it was basically my healing process writing about it, but also writing about the process to help other parents uh, maybe give them opportunity to, to, to shift their thinking and, and to actually take joy of, of being with their child and, and having also more say in how they are with their child. And what's the name of your book? Well, translated, it is called I Am Free Now in in English. It's something Emre said. Once a year, I try to take him to Anat in San Rafael, uh, to her center. And uh, the last time we were there, we went with his walker and she worked with him. And then we went to Target because I had to buy a few things. And I am with the shopping cart and he's pushing his walker. And he, at one point, said to me, uh, you can look in this aisle. I'm just going to go for a walk. And he left his walker and started taking steps. I mean, he would take steps at the time in the house, but never outside, never in a place that he would he didn't know it was foreign to him. And, you know, there's all these shelves and, and stuff around. So it could be, you know, not safe either. But he did that. And from that day onward, every day we would go to Barnes and Nobles is our most popular place to go. So he would play hide and seek with me there or, or say, you know, I'm going to the kids section. You go to the your section and we'll meet at the cashier. And one day when he was walking away from me, because every day he was getting faster and there was more fluidity in his walk. And he just opened up his arms and he said, I am free now. And there was there's this just joy in how he was saying, you know, like, you don't have to be with me because up until that time, I was always, you know, walking by his side, making sure, you know, because he would fall every now and then. And if it was, I would usually let him fall, but if it was too dangerous, then I would be there to catch him. So, but there was this always this, we were as a couple and now he was just, we could go wherever he wanted uh, in the rhythm he wanted and the pace he wanted. So he was like, I'm free now. That's beautiful. A lot of families in in the United States, at least parents are sort of on their own and they, they want to try anything they can. So they try lots of different things. I always looked uh, to make him move more and more and more. So he loves to swim. At three years of age, he started, uh, he wanted to start judo. Now, now he's a brown belt. He even went to, to a tournament there. So, you know, like judo is a big part of his life. Uh, he did yoga. He loves playing soccer with his friends. Um, so yeah, he, he likes to move a, around a lot and, and, uh, that's yeah sports has been a part of our journey a big part of our journey because that's where he likes to challenge himself too so and wants to do more and wants to achieve more and be together with his friends and play together with his friends and i see that as the best therapy you know yeah and um what's his school like is he in a school like with other kids that are neurotypical or is he in a special school neurotypical kids yeah because he doesn't have cognitive uh, delays so I mean I said that because even if in Turkey since a couple years kids with special needs can go to any school right 
But there's a big backlash from the school not accepting the kids with special needs. So there's this big uh, fight against families and, and school administrations, especially if the child has you know cognitive delays or behavioral challenges. It's it's a, it's a big issue. He just loves learning and being there with his peers and and playing and learning together. So we've been very very lucky in that sense. Are there many instances where you've had to advocate for him? I mean, you know, you always have to. Uh, you know, there are um, situations where um, I had to do more, but I usually let him do it. So again, like the first day of school when they, uh, when the principal called me saying that maybe you should come before Emre to school and he should come later so you can explain uh, his friends about his situation. So inform them so they don't ask questions to him. And I said, no, you know, he can talk about himself. He, he I, I'm not going to talk for him. He knows himself. He knows his challenges. He knows people are going to ask him questions. And even if I do, you know, tell his friends, they're still going to go and ask him. It's I don't want anything to be not normal you know you you have your circle time in the morning probably the first day of school everyone is going to speak a little bit about themselves and emma will say you know i use a walker i i wear braces because you know my muscles uh, are not strong enough and i have a sister and i love sports and i love music and that'll be it you know let's not make it a big deal and the the school has been very understanding with my uh, way of thinking so they let, let him do it and the more he did it the more you know empowered he became too about and to advocate for himself does he encounter any kind of bullying i mean he's still kind of young in school yeah no no he does he does he does and how does he handle that i mean for of course it's upsetting for him especially if it comes from people he knows and calls friends but you know it, it happens and it will happen and I can't raise him in a bubble. So he has to learn. I mean, it's important for me, for him to speak about it, speak about it to me, to uh, his friends. And, uh, you know, maybe not at the time of the incident, but sometime later uh, to talk about his feelings and what hurt him and how and why uh, to understand the other, you know, the, the, the friend's perspective and, uh, and that's helped him a lot because sometimes, you know, he sees that there's a big misunderstanding and sometimes he sees it's got nothing to do with him. So, you know, having these uh, opportunities of, of dialogue helps him, I think, mature in that way. And, and again, you know, he will have to advocate for himself. I can't be there with him 24-7. So... Sometimes the sister, if she's there, she would jump in to uh, protect him. And I had to stop her from doing that and just let him do it on his own because she's very protective Uh, of her brother. Sounds like you use these instances, which can happen obviously to any child, as teaching moments. And then he, he then matures and gets more ability to express his emotions and deal with negativity yeah, from others yeah, of course it's, it's emotional resilience you know we always go through those phases all of us i do it all the time so it's it's the way you look at life you know it if it's going to knock you over or if you're going to you know stand up from where where you fall off and 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 move on so right. it's 
uh, and not get caught up in all of that uh, drama. You know, it's it's going to happen. It's part of life. But then you just shake it off and, and move on. Yeah. But it's important, again, to talk about it and not keep it inside. That's my priority. You know, it's it's to share it and share your feelings and and talk about it. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about their relationship with each other, brother and sister. How is how is that? You know, they have their moments, but they they never call each other by their names. We have a word in Turkish. It, it's basically translates to like my dear sibling, but it's one word. So there's that affection in it, in the word. So they always, even if they're fighting, they call them to each other, you know, my dear sibling. Um, it's fun. You know, they, they're very, they're very close. They're very close and yet they're different and they see each other's differences in, in behavior and in, in, in interests. And, but they do, um, they do share a lot. And I think it's wonderful for both of them to have each other in their lives. If you were to give advice to other parents that are maybe just starting off on this journey or feel a little bit stuck or just just advice that you've learned that you think would be helpful for others? So especially when you start off in this journey, you'll hear a lot of different opinions, um, opposing opinions from experts and doctors and therapists. And I always, you know, tell my families too, it's it's the mother's instinct. Um, the gut feeling is, is it's the strongest. So I would trust that, you know, you know what's going to be best for your child, always. And it never fails. So that would be the first one. Just trust your intuition. I find that it's a bit of a paradox because I understand that parents know their children the best. On the other hand, you have people that, let's say, like yourself, who are having an ABM session with a parent and you are making suggestions to the parent to be a little bit different. And many parents might be like, well, who are you to tell me what I should do with my child if they have the attitude that I know what's best for my child? So there's that sort of paradox in that advice. How can you be open-minded to, to new ideas about your child if you are the expert on your child? What I meant was, whatever information you get from the outside, listen to your gut. That will tell you if what you're hearing might be a possibility for you and your child or not. It's when you strict uh, opinion about something, it's very hard to get new feedback and new information. What I'm saying is be open enough to listen, but then listen to your you know, intuition and let that be the guide in this, in your decision-making process. Yeah. Does that make sense? Completely. The, what you just said really clarifies it, that it's not black and white. It's more about that you trust yourself more than anybody else. Exactly. That doesn't mean that you can't be open to what other people say, but, but the bottom line is you have to believe in it and no one's going to tell you what's better and also I also encourage parents because I, that's something I've done too is is keep a journal you know from first day onward I I had several journals it's 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 good to write about what the child can do at that time 
And then, you know, the feedback you get from different specialists, different experts, therapists, whatever, you know, suggestions for your child. I always took notes about that. And then every now and then you look back and you see from the suggestions you get where the child was and where he is now and you see the progress and it just it, it either makes sense or it doesn't make sense again no one has the magic wand I always tell parents you know you can try different things if the child is happy and peaceful and safe while they're doing whatever they're doing if you're seeing progress with whatever you're doing obviously it's 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 it makes sense that you do it you know so having that open-mindedness and also having the journal where you can actually backtrack because you know it's it's a roller coaster ride sometimes as a parent apart from you know all the experts opinions and you know you always question am i doing the right thing am i doing enough is there more that i can do what else can i do you know there's always no matter the age of the child there are still moments where i i debate with myself even though he's nine years old and, you know, we've had a lot of experience in these last, you know, nine years, going through the journal and seeing that it gives you hope again, it, it, it brings you to your feet again, uh, you know, you, 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 you get inspired again and you believe uh, in, in whatever you're doing more. Um, so I think it's, 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 it's very useful to, to, to have a journal. That's a great suggestion. You know, to find your own rhythm and pace and, and what works for you, you will have to do your own research and not wait for answers to come to you. You know, knowledge is power. Learn a lot. That will give you a um, foundation to be able to advocate for your child and, and know what's best for your child. Not everything will be useful for your child uh, or doing a lot will necessarily make it so that he improves faster or better. But no one has a magic wand. It's, it's a process. It's a long process and it can be hard. It can be disappointing at times, you know, worrisome. But it, can, it is also, you know, joyful and fun. And inspiring and I think the best way to deal with it is to embrace it all with all the you know uh, negative aspects and also the positive aspects because it's your new life and it's your normal now so so just yeah just embrace it all and take care of yourself I did that later you know I wish I had started taking care of myself and helping me heal uh, earlier again the ABM training had a huge impact in me going forward in emotionally. What do you do to take care of yourself? Now I, I love taking long walks. I love being a part of new trainings. I'm an assistant in the ABM trainings, but it also gives me a break from everything. You know, I go there for 11, 12 days. It's like my retreat. I, I met a lot of uh, wonderful parents along the way and they've become, uh, you know, we've become very close and we share a lot. So yeah, that would be another advice actually to, to find parents that are going through similar journeys, processes around you, because you do, you need someone to walk this path with. How do you feel about the label of children with special needs? That's a chapter in my book. In Turkish, we do have the label children with special needs. I 
don't like using that. Mm. I don't believe in labels and I don't believe in labeling kids. So extraordinary, unique, uh, special, you know, it just puts them in a different place. And I don't think they should, they should be normal. They, they, I mean, they are normal. Um, why, why do we need an adjective to, uh, to speak about them? It's just how they are, the, the progress they're making, the, the developmental process is different compared to, you know, typical developing kids. But you don't need an adjective to label that. You feel like it makes it like there's something wrong with the kids. Yeah, not, not even wrong. It's just putting it outside the normal. You know, why? this is normal. We're all different. I mean, of course, they have different challenges and needs. And I'm always looking from the child's perspective. You know, it's just they take themselves out of the common group and and we don't need that we're trying to get all kids in an inclusive environment and by labeling them you're just like I feel like you're just pushing them outside of the circle so I don't think we need words like special or unique or extraordinary I think each child is unique and special and extraordinary the whole idea of process how do you deal with parents expectations of some kind of quick fix desire versus the idea that in the long run or it's going to take a while it's a process have you found that you're successful with helping people see that or or do people see that already what has been your experience people who come to me do know about our process mostly so Emre is now nine years old. He started taking his first steps when he was six. You know, he still has balance issues. He still has his challenges. So it's, it's, it is a process. So families who come to me already know that, you know, and we've been doing ABM for eight years and we've seen miracles day after day, but you know, it's, it's, it's a journey. So, um, you know, Anat has that, uh, you know, you know it too. There is no small change or big change. Change is change. So I always emphasize that to parents. It's, it's, it's being a detective and looking out for those little subtle changes in the child because the most important thing that is that the child can learn. And if they can learn, you know, they can always learn more. So, and you know, the flexible goals is another essential that I always ask the parents to read about in Kids Beyond Limits, because, you know, we all have our dreams and our expectations and our goals, but you have to be also prepared to uh, be flexible in those goals. Otherwise, if you're just like fixated on one thing, you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. And I'm not just talking about, you know, having a child with special needs, it, it goes out for anything. So it is, it is a long process. I mean, you know, they see it again with my son and our journey and they know it's not going to change from one day to the other. But once you get the, the, the families to start seeing those little changes, they start having more joy in their lives, you know, their, their family lives, because they, they learn to celebrate those little changes. And I think that's, that helps them change their perspective in how they be, with their kids and uh, and just ha have more faith in the process and uh, whatever they're doing. So 
I think that's the most important thing. One of the most important thing as practitioners dealing with families is, is to teach them to, to look out for, for little changes and be detectives in, in, in looking out for those little changes. And do people ask you often, like, how long is this going to take? And, and what, what do you say to that kind of question? What I tell families who uh, just start uh, with ABM is let's do, you know, three rounds of intensives and then sit down and have a talk. You know, what changes do you see? What changes do I see? And, and if they want to go forward or not, just to have a more honest dialogue with the parents. Every time I went to see Anat, I would ask her, you know, if he's going to walk or not. And he would just, she would just laugh at me and say, you know, I don't know. I'm doing everything I can in my power to help his brain change and, and lay the foundations for that. But it, is got, it has to come from him. So, and I always found that answer very honest, you know, because the neurologist who told me that he will never be able to walk was again being a fortune teller and and no one knows no one knows the power of the brain so i can't i don't make any promises to families i always say this is a process it's a long process but if there's change there's potential for more change so just you know be in the process do you have anything you'd like to say anything i have not asked you well i have a center in istanbul and up until the start of the pandemic, every month I had either one or two visiting practitioners that come and work with me with families and kids. So uh, it was an up and running, uh, quite busy center at the time. Now, unfortunately, we can't have uh, visiting practitioners. So it's only me, but I'm hoping these days will be over at some point and, you know, back to... <laughs> the old way. You're very generous with your time. I just, I, I know it was fun. I hope it was useful. Oh, oh my, <laughs> fantastic. No, no. Great. And I, you know, you've said so many great things in so many different ways that are really powerful. I mean, oh, good. I, I've met you of course, but not for long conversations, but uh, you know, people talk yeah. about you a lot, just so you know, like in a very positive, positive, positive way. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Like you're kind oh. of like famous out there as a, uh, as somebody who's really, uh, you know, breaking ground and, you know, doing great work. And yeah, yeah. you know, I, I just knew this is going to be our, you know, driving engine, uh, the, this method and the principles. And, and so I just went for it. I'm working uh, with my son with this method only. So uh, why would I do that to my own child if it's not, if it's not working, you know? Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Beryl writes in her book, I Am Free Now. I designed my graduation thesis in 2003, coincidentally on wabi-sabi, a Japanese philosophy of life that dates back to ancient times. Wabi-sabi is an understanding of being able to see the beauty within the imperfection. Instead of seeing perfection, it is seeing the value of the flaw, knowing it, loving it as it is, and finding it beautiful. How well it fits with our new life path. Thanks for listening, everybody, to Wisdom Shared. For links and resources related to everything mentioned today, visit the show notes on carolblueice.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, 
or wherever you listen. That way you can receive wisdom every month. Sharing the show with friends or with social media is always appreciated. A final piece of wisdom in Beryl's words from I Am Free Now. No matter how difficult, tiring, and dark the process may be for the moment, it brings light with it over time.